Good morning. Welcome to LifeBridge. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at LifeBridge Baptist Church, and I want to welcome you to welcome you to week four of not gathering as a church. Yes, that's right. A local church not gathering in one place. A called out assembly not assembling. That is not right. It's not the ideal. But in God's providential grace, this is where he has us. And so this is kind of wearing on us, is it not? Are, are, can, if, if there's someone there with you, turn to him and say, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this. We realize that. But what does the Lord expect of us? What does the Lord expect of us? And here is good news for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this, God expects the same things of us now that he's always expected. He wants us to be faithful, to be flexible, and to be fruitful in the things that he has called us to do. And I just want to put a shout out to the glory of God to our LifeBridge family. God has so greatly provided financially so far through this pandemic, and that is a credit to God's grace of giving being active in your life. Just one piece of great news that we can rejoice in is our missions budget, our faith promise giving, is over $600 of where we need to be at this time. Over. So let's just shout, glory to God. Just, just say it right out loud. Say it to someone there that you're with. Glory to God. God is good and he's taking care of us. And let's continue to trust him for that. Now, another aspect of being faithful during this time is what you're doing right now. And that is gathering where you can to study God's word together. And so let me welcome one and all to our discovery hour it is that time where we have classes of all ages and stages, and we seek to bridge the gap from learning to living. And during this time, which is not ideal, but it's where we are at, I'm teaching right now during this time. And so let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Let's ask Him to bridge the gap between what we hear and how we live. Let's pray. Father, we come. And we just acknowledge that we're weary, we're tired. This is wearing on us. For some, it's really emotionally stressful. For others, they have financial stress. Lord, we all have relational stress. Some are very alone because they're isolated all alone. Some are isolated with too many people. And we're wearing on each other's nerves. And so, Father, may we look towards you. And may this time in your word, in the gospel according to Isaiah, change our perspective and fill our hearts with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing our study of the gospel according to Isaiah. On Isaiah 53, one of the greatest chapters in the Old Testament, if not in the whole Bible. It begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13, with one of the worst chapter divisions in all the Bible. But 
I have, if you've downloaded the notes, and I have here on the screen, a chart that gives you. This is the fourth of four servant songs in the Gospel of Isaiah. And this particular song has five stanzas. And this is the fifth week. We've been working through all five stanzas. And I've shown you a little bit of the structure here in this chart. I wish I had time to take you through it. It's a great literary masterpiece. And it has a what literary, literary people call a chiastic structure, where it forms like an X. It moves into the center, and that center point is the most important, sacrificial substitution. And yet, as you move in and out, it's parallel with all these beautiful symmetry in this structure. So today, what we want to do is look at that last stanza. And so if you have your Bibles... And I hope you do. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. And we're going to be studying verses 10, 11, and 12. But let's start by reading in verse 4. So follow along. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Whatever version you have, just follow along. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was actually due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He was a sinless man. Verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering... He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper or succeed in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, God is now speaking, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot with him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded or intervened for the transgressors. Now, these last three verses, 10, 11, and 12, are like a cup 
where all the truths that we've been learning through Isaiah 53 are poured into these last three verses. So what I want to do is introduce you to some of the deep theological truths that are, that are found in this passage. And I know that's risky because you're at home and uh, you're relaxed and maybe you're not ready for some deep truths. But let me say this to you. During the crisis we're in, we don't need weak theology We need strong theology. We don't need less theology. We need more theology. For when we have strong theology and we plant our hearts and our lives firmly on it, then we can endure and persevere through any storm. So let me begin by making this statement, and it's this. Substitution makes both propitiation and justification a reality by means of imputation. Now, don't think I'm making these words up. These are biblical words, and they're biblical truths that are found throughout Scripture. So I want to start by just giving you four simple definitions of these words. Words that you need to learn, words that you need to understand, and words that will play out as we study the rest of these verses. So let me give you some simple definitions. Substitution. Well, here's what substitution is. The sacrifice of a sinless person in the place of sinful people. Pretty simple. Second word, propitiation. A little stranger word, a little harder to say and maybe to remember. But whenever I see the word propitiation, I always think satisfaction. Satisfaction. The satisfaction of God's just wrath against rebels and their sin poured out on the sinless substitute. You see, through substitution, propitiation, God's wrath is satisfied on the substitute instead of us as the wayward sheep who really deserve it. The third word is justification. And when I think justification, I think Declaration. It's a legal term. Propitiation is a word from the temple courts. uh, Justification is a word from the law courts. And here's what it means. The declaration of sinners to be right with God based on substitution and propitiation. Because a substitute has satisfied God's wrath, God can be just to declare sinners as not only being not guilty, but actually being fully righteous. Do you realize in justification God declares sinners to be as good as He is? As good as Christ is. Not just going from a negative 10 to 0, but going from a negative 10 to a 10, a perfect 10 plus. The last word is imputation. And this is a word... From the financial world. It's it's an accounting term. And here's what imputation means. The salvation of sinners. By crediting their sin to the substitute. And crediting his righteousness to them by grace through faith in the substitute and his propitiation. So the idea is he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. What is his is credited to us, and what is ours is credited to him. 
Here's the reality. The only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin. And the only thing that Jesus brings to our salvation is everything that He is. So those are the four words. But we want to focus on verses 10 through 12. And here's what I want you to think about. Was the servant's work finished to God's satisfaction? Was the servant's work, or we live on this side of Easter, this side of the cross, was Jesus' work on the cross finished to the satisfaction of God the Father? Now, Mick Jagger is the lead singer of the Rolling Stones, and he got rich singing, I can't get no satisfaction. Well, what we're asking is, is Jesus and the Lord, do they sing, I can't get no satisfaction? Is that what they're singing? Was the servant's work not sufficient to satisfy God's justice and God's wrath? Well, here's the good news. The final stanza of the fourth servant song sings with joy over the provision of saving satisfaction. God has provided saving satisfaction through His Son, Jesus Christ. So let's look at it and uh, let's ask the question, how did the servant's work provide this kind of saving satisfaction? And each verse is going to give us one point and here's the first one. The first point is this, the Lord was satisfied with his servant's sacrifice. The Lord was satisfied with his servant's sacrifice. We see this in verse 10. Now, look at your look in your Bibles. Verse 10 begins and ends with the same word. It begins with the word pleasure and it ends with pleasure. Now, some of your Bibles, ESV, NIV, have the word will. The Lord's will at the beginning, the Lord's will at the end. And we'll explain that, but take a look at it. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Now, this is probably one of the most shocking statements in all the Bible. The Lord was pleased to crush his servant, his son, the suffering servant. Now, let's ask the question. This is the most important question in this passage, really. And so we'll spend most of our time on this, and we'll move through the other verses a little quicker. But let's ask the question. Why was the Lord pleased to crush his servant? Why was the Lord pleased to crush his son? And the answer is this. The crushing was his predetermined plan to save the wayward and willful sheep that we read about in the previous verses. It was God's predetermined plan to save sinners by crushing his son. So here's the reality. The servant's death was not a human tragedy of rebellion. It was rather the Lord's divine strategy for redemption. Listen, the doctrines of penal, substitutionary atonement, and propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath, they are shocking doctrines to our worldly thinking. And our rebel hearts rebel and reject this notion of crushing. But listen, the hearts of the redeemed see in these kinds of words this crushing. They see the heart of the gospel. And to the ears of the redeemed, 
whose ears have been opened by the Holy Spirit, they hear good news, good news to the glory of God and for the salvation of sinners. So let's talk about this word pleased, because that's a key word. Now, pleased is not the distorted pleasure, it taking distorted pleasure in suffering. Instead, pleased means the Lord's desired purpose to accomplish salvation has occurred. In other words, this is not the sadistic pleasure of a cosmic child abuser. No, this is the saving purposes of a loving God. This is what he desired to do to save sinners because he knew it was required by his own holy justice. You see, the Lord was not pleased in taking pleasure in the suffering of another. The Lord was pleased in the sense of accomplishing his saving purposes. Now, maybe you're saying right now, Chris, what are those saving purposes? Well, I wish I had time to take you through the previous three servant songs. Because if you read through all the servant songs that lead up to Isaiah 53, you find there's at least five saving purposes. So let me rattle these off. But think about them. This is why he was pleased to crush his son. To restore Israel to covenant blessings. To reach the Gentiles living in darkness. To shine the light of his salvation to the ends of the earth. To bring God's kingdom to this earth so his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And ultimately to restore his order to his rebellious creation so that there will be a new creation a new heaven and a new earth. You see, listen, the crushing of the servant, the crushing of his son, was not a human tragedy of rebellion. It was a divine strategy for redemption. And so that's why in the ESV and the NIV, it says, yet it was his will, it was the will of the Lord, it was the desire, the intended purpose. Jesus' death was no accident. It didn't catch God off off guard. Jesus' death wasn't a martyrdom because he wasn't forced into it. Jesus was not a victim who had no choice. The death of Jesus was part of God's predestined purpose. I wish I had time to read all of the passages. The early church preached this in their evangelism. The early church preached prayed this under persecution. But let me take you to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21. So if you have 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21, let's read that together. Here's what Peter says, verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God 
in God because God has done it all through the crushing of His Son. It's not what we do to please God. It's not cleaning up our life. It's what God did in crushing His Son as a sinless substitute for our sins. And so the crushing was not only a predetermined plan, but secondly, the crushing was His gracious means to provide satisfaction by a perfect guilt offering. If you look at the rest of verse 10, it says, if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. Now here's what you got to understand about a guilt offering. It was one of five sacrifices required by the law of Moses that you can find in the book of Leviticus. And of those five sacrifices, the guilt offering was the most comprehensive of all of them. And here's why. Because you not only had to have the shedding of blood, the slaughter of a lamb, but you also had to pay restitution. You had to pay the penalty of your offense. And so some commentators call this offering the total satisfaction offering. Because it involved not only shedding of blood, but paying the full penalty with interest on what was owed due to the offense. Well, here's the good news about Jesus Christ. He's the servant who offered himself his very life. He didn't just do a guilt offering. He was the guilt offering. And he offered himself up on the cross as the guilt offering as the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. That's why on the cross, Jesus shouted out the last words before He commended His life into the hands of the Father, Tetelestai! Tetelestai! What's that mean? It means it is finished! It is finished! Paid in full! Paid in full! Everything is paid in full. But how do we know? How do we know that it was paid in full? How do we know that God was satisfied with the crushing of His Son? The way we know that God is satisfied with His servant's sacrifice is this. God's satisfaction is seen in the resurrection of His servant. God's satisfaction is seen in the resurrection of His servant. That's what the the rest of the verse 10 is about. If he would render himself as a guilt offering to satisfy for the sins of the world, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In other words, he suffers, and then he sees, and then he succeeds. He suffers, he sees the success of what he has done, and then he he succeeds. Now, Here's the Lord's satisfaction. And we won't take a lot of time here, but I just want you to see that the Lord's satisfaction will make sure that the servant sees his offspring. Now think about that. How can a dead man who's a guilt offering see his offspring unless he's resurrected? And how can a single man have descendants? Well, these are the spiritual seed that will come from his work of redemption. And so he will see. Hebrews 2 says that the risen Lord will bring many sons to glory. 
And the Lord's satisfaction will also make sure that the servant stretches forth his days. How can a dead man have days that will stretch into eternity? Only by the resurrection. And then thirdly, the Lord's satisfaction will make sure that the servant succeeds in fulfilling the Lord's redemptive purpose. I love how the message paraphrases verse 10. Listen. Still, it's what God had in mind all along to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Listen. The servant's work was brought saving satisfaction because the Lord was satisfied with his sacrifice. But it's not just the Lord who is satisfied. Look at verse 11. The servant himself is satisfied. Well, what's he satisfied, Chris? What, what satisfies him? The servant was satisfied with his substitution. And that's what we see in verse 11. So look at verse 11. Notice what it says. As a result of, or you could, it's very strong, because of, because of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Now notice, in verse 10, he suffers, he sees, and then he succeeds. But here in this verse, he suffers, he sees what he suffered, and he is satisfied. So let me give you two points to kind of explore this verse. And the first is this. The servant will be satisfied with the saving outcome of his brutal crushing. In other words, he goes through the crushing, he looks back, and he's satisfied. That was horrible. I endured the, the punishment of the sins of the world. It was physically crushing. It was spiritually crushing. I took on eternal wrath for three hours. But when I look back, I'm satisfied. Why? Because of the saving outcome of what happened on the cross. Hebrews 12.2 explains it this way. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Shame, that's okay, because I have something better. I will sit down at the right hand of the throne of God, who for the joy set before him. And that joy was not only his exaltation, but it was yours and my salvation that he accomplished on the cross. You see, the servant looks back at his suffering and he says, it was worth it. It was worth it. Why? Because after my suffering, when the wrath of God was satisfied, God has highly exalted me. And he's bestowed on me the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of those in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Philippians 2 is why Jesus was satisfied 
with his suffering. You see, the reality is this. He was satisfied because his suffering brought many, many sons to glory. And we really see that saving outcome in the second part of verse uh, 11. So let's look at it. Here's what we see. We see in the second part of verse 11, the righteous one will declare many rebels to be righteous by being their sacrificial substitute. So let's stop here a moment. Remember those key words I began this lesson with? In verse 10, the key word was propitiation. God's wrath was satisfied as the servant offered himself up as a guilt offering that satisfied and shed his blood and paid the penalty of our sin in full with interest. But here in verse 11, the focus is justification. Here in verse 11, God is graciously declaring sinners to be right with him on the basis of the servant's sacrificial death. You know, really, in verse 11, Isaiah is predicting the gospel. He's predicting the gospel that Paul preached. It's a gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the scriptures. And it's predicted here in Isaiah 53, and it's fulfilled in the person and the work of Christ in the New Testament. I could share with you many verses of what Paul said regarding justification. But let's just look at Romans 5. So turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. Romans 5, 6 through 11. Here's what Paul says. And listen to the echoes of the gospel according to Isaiah. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God, there's those two beautiful words, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, rebels, transgressors, Christ died for us. He died in our place. Much more than having now been justified, declared righteous by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Why? Because he's our propitiation. He's our satisfaction. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we will exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The guilt offering has been paid. Reconciliation is possible for even the most radical of sinners. Maybe you've been running from God for a very long time. Maybe you have so much guilt, so much regret, you think God could never accept someone like me. God could never love someone like me. But the reality is this. He has loved sinners from the beginning from eternity past before creation, and he's still loving sinners into eternity future. For when we were ungodly, Christ died that we might be justified by his blood. Well, 
How can he do that? The rest of the verse tells us how God can be just and yet declare sinners to be justified in his sight. The rest of the verse says this, by his knowledge, and that that refers to the servant's experience on the cross, by his experience of substitutionary atonement, of satisfying God's wrath, the righteous one, there's only one who's righteous. There's only one who is acceptable to God. The righteous one, my servant. He will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. In other words, by substitution and by propitiation, the servant will declare many sinners to be right with God. Here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Don't miss this. Every single blessing that God freely pours out on the undeserving sinners is rooted in His work of substitutionary atonement. It's all rooted there. So what have we seen? Well, we've seen that the work of the servant was sat, was brought saving satisfaction. Why? Because the Lord was satisfied with His sacrifice, the guilt offering. Secondly, the servant himself was satisfied with his substitution in the place of sinners. Why? Because it brought justification to the ungodly. But there's one last point and one last verse I want us to quickly look at, and it's this. His sheep are satisfied with their sovereign Savior. His sheep are satisfied with their sovereign Savior. Now, we're looking at the last verse, verse 12. But I want to warn you here, in verse 12, there's two ways to translate this verse. Both are correct. Both uh, are possible, according to the Hebrew, the original Hebrew. The one way to translate it is the way the New American Standard, and really nearly every other English translation uh, translated. It's like what I've previously read. But I think the Christian Standard Bible accurately translates this verse. And so it's in your notes, but I also have it here on the screen. And I want to read to you verse 12, according to the Christian Standard Bible. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, as his inheritance. And he will receive the mighty as his spoiled, as a conquering victor. And why is this? Because he willingly submitted to death. And he was counted among rebel sinners. And he yet he bore the sin of many and interceded or intervened with glorious deliverance for rebels. Rebels like you and me. Now, this verse 12 is filled with military metaphors. Plundering, uh, portion, uh, spoils, uh, intervention, divine deliverance. The point is this. The suffering servant, because he has satisfied God's wrath, because he has submitted to the will of God, because he has offered himself freely as our sacrificial substitute, he is now exalted as the con- conquering victor over 
sin, over Satan, over death, over every authority and power, whether in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth. And basically, according to verse 12, his reward is twofold. His first reward is the many he has redeemed. Isn't that a beautiful thing? His reward, his inheritance, are the very people that he shed his blood to purchase. It's his sheep that he called to himself. But his reward is also the mighty over whom he now rules. His name is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every, everyone must submit and say, yes, you are Lord. So why is the servant exalted in this way? What got him there? As one commentator says, it's not because he was humiliated. He was. It's not because he was suffered unjustly. He did. It's not because he did it voluntarily. Oh, yes, he did that as well. But it was ultimately because of the end of verse 12. It's because he was willing to be our sinless substitute. It was because he was willing to suffer the wrath of God to satisfy God's justice. It was because he was a substitute in our place. And therefore, he could intervene to deliver us. Listen, here's the good news. The servant is exalted as the sovereign Savior who will one day return to restore God's kingdom on this earth. He's at the right hand of the Father now, but one day he will return and his kingdom will come and his will would be, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is our propitiation. He satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus is our justification. So a loving God can declare us right with Him. Jesus is our sanctification. So we can be fully devoted disciples, just like He was. Jesus is our resurrection. So we can live in resurrection power. And even though disease or death may take us, we will rise again. Jesus is our glorification. We can be exalted with Him in glorified bodies. No more curse. No more death. No more virus. No more disease. Jesus is our intervention who has conquered all so we can live as new creations before the new creation even comes. Oh, beloved, let us crown Him with many crowns, for He is worthy. Crown Him with many crowns, the Lamb upon His throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of Him who died for Thee, and hail Him as Thy matchless King through all eternity. Crown Him the Lord of life, who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing. Who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Crown him the Lord of lords, who over all doth reign, who once on earth 
The incarnate word for ransom, sinners slain, now lives in realms of light where saints with, with angels sing their songs before him day and night, their God, Redeemer, King. Crown him the Lord of heaven, enthroned in worlds above. Crown him the King to whom is given the wondrous name of love. Crown him with many crowns as thrones before him fall. Crown him, ye kings, with many crowns, for he is king of all. Amen and amen. So today I, I cry out to you. I offer to you the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the exalted suffering servant, and I ask you this, I remind you of this, the Lord is not seeking to satisfy you. The Lord has sought to satisfy himself so that he may save you through his son. And so I ask you this last question. Have you found your salvation? Have you found your satisfaction in this sovereign savior? Jesus Saving satisfaction is offered to all wayward sheep. He is offering his salvation, his satisfaction for your sins. All you have to do is repent from your own works to receive him. But secondly, Jesus' satisfying salvation is received by sheep who hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He laid down his life. No one took it from him. And he picked it back up in the resurrection. And he is exalted at the right hand. And he's coming again. But before he comes and conquers the rebellious, let him conquer your heart. Turn in repentance from your sins. And embrace this, this conquering, suffering Savior. I pray that for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what glorious news that this one who was so humiliated because of our sins has now been exalted to your right hand. And one day he will come and his feet will touch the Mount of Olives and he will reign over all the universe. Oh, Father, may we bow our hearts now and proclaim him as Lord. May we crown him with many crowns. May we acknowledge him as our Lord and Savior and therefore live with resurrection power as his faithful, obedient sheep. I pray this in the name of the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you made that decision in the comments, there's a connection card. Fill out that card. Any decision you made, any prayer request you may have, Fill out that connection card and then join us right back here, same time, same place, 930 next week, as we continue in our study of the gospel according to Isaiah.